have you seen our Robocop remake? This is a, it's not the actual remake, no. This is actually, um, it's oh, a, no. an anthology. Uh, oh, oh, no. oh, I feel like I need to show it to you now. Um, oh. uh, yeah, there's a scene in it where it's basically all these different filmmakers and it was a Vimeo uh, feature film, but it's all right. these different filmmakers come together and they recreate scenes from Robocop, but they put their spin onto it. So some of them might be um, animated, some of them might be, um, you know, bad suits. But there's one of them, which is the uh, the sort of the the scene where Robocop shoots the guy, uh, shoots shoots the the, the rapist between yeah. the the skirt of the woman and uh, yeah. shoots him in the dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this it, it does that, except that Robocop just shoots the dick off of about three hundred guys. So every time <laughs> the scene. Uh, every time he shoots somebody, another uh, uh, criminal runs in and is like, you motherfucker, and he shoots his dick off, and you see the dick's getting blown to bits until he leaves wreckage of all these bodies on the floor uh, and everyone clutching these pumping blood prosthetic penises. It is it is unreal. I've got to show it to you. It's one of oh, the most God. insane things I've ever seen. <laughs> Gather round, kids. And <laughs> Saturday a nice big, big movie has been arranged. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. What did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where each week we pick our favourite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host Will, a writer of three films and a Christmas special, and I'm joined once again by my co-host and writer of One and a Bit Films, a lovely, lovely Valentine's Day card to my cat, and three and a bit episodes of TV, Kevin. Kevin, hello. Hello, Will. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Did the cat like the Valentine's card? <laughs> I will. I want to say, my cat has. Are been we going to start doing that from now on? Just start adding in sort of um, <laughs> uh, made up things. What? What, is, what do you mean made up? He loves that card. He's, 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 that's, she told that's, me she he's couldn't read. <laughs> oh god, Kevin, how are you? Well, it's good, to, we'll, good, good to be here with you again. It is. It's good, and you know. Seeing as this week's episode is all about scenes of inappropriateness, I decided for this podcast to uh, strip off Will and I am naked from the waist down and gently rocking back and forth on a wooden rocking chair and I oh, feel Lord. in the zone and I'm ready to record. Oh, oh Lord. Is, it, is there a bottom <laughs> on this chair? Is there a bottom underneath this chair, Kevin? I just need to know. There is and it's, it's, uh, it's quite smooth and quite comfortable. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, please. I thought that would be nice and inappropriate. That's so inappropriate. It's so inappropriate. Now, Kevin, can you, because you are exceedingly good at pitches, and you're exceedingly good at pitching this particular podcast in our format, could you, there's people going to be joining us for the first time, and, and, uh, you know, you know, give them an idea of what they're in for. You know, when you say that, that just makes me, that all my instincts say, pitch this as badly as you can, make it the worst <laughs> possible pitch. But I'll, I'll try and do it in a, in a concise way. 
so we have a decision wheel, a big decision wheel that's got 300 different scene suggestions on it. Each week, we take turns in spinning the wheel, and it's filled with types of categories like action scene, uh, chase scene, zombie scene, and so far, we've done tearjerkers, musical numbers, uh, sex scenes, Harrison Ford scenes, and this week, it's best I can't believe that was in a kid's film scene. Yeah, so Kevin, hey, let's dive into it. Hang on, let me just put on some underpants. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, I'm actually kind of glad of that. Uh, Kevin, we're back, and here I am. I So I got this inappropriate kid scene, uh, a scene on the kid's film topic, and it was one of those strange, unusual topics that I'm sure was put into the wheel with great thought and um, <laughs> and uh, uh, and consideration. But let's just say it did open, what was interesting about it, it did open a kind of a can of worms uh, into my own childhood personal nightmares. And okay. um, I'd like to thank you for that, Kevin. Uh, because You're welcome. To do so. But first, I want to ask you... Um, uh, did did you did you have any kind of an initial? Where where did your gut go to when you when you first thought when you first kind of thought about it, this uh, this particular topic? Do you have any kind of picks? Yeah, well, I had uh, about four or five different picks, and like they kept changing. But um, because the eighties was so sort of out there, uh, I first was thinking that I was going to pick big. Because, you know, Big is the story of a 13-year-old boy trapped in the body of Tom Hanks who gets his hole off of a businesswoman. And uh, I thought that is such a weird, strange film and such a strange concept that that would be my pick. But I didn't go with that one. Uh, And then I thought I might go with Back to the Future. Which is, you know, obviously everyone knows the story to that, but it's the story of a boy racer who travels back in time in a robbed car and has to stop his horny mum from trying to shag him out of existence. And uh, I didn't go with that one. Uh, well, you know what also is so inappropriate about that, Kevin? Is that what? we have this this relationship he has with a, a this new, whatever, 40-year-old or 80-year-old nuclear scientist. This this just random relationship. This, this single man who has befriended a teenage boy uh, and there's nothing really kind of said about it. It's just like, yeah, they're buddies. <laughs> you know, where that whole thing? The other from? one is um is a uh, uh, Billy in Gremlins. His best friend is uh, a twelve year old. Oh yeah. And no one sort of uh, questions that either. It's like <laughs> the kid that is uh, in the Christmas tree farm. Um, Corey Feldman. Is his best mate, yeah. and it's sort of like when you when you're a kid, you watch it and you think, "Oh yeah, they're just mates. Why wouldn't they be mates? Billy's cool." Then when you get older, yeah. you think, "Doesn't Billy have any mates of his own age?" <laughs> but it was the eighties. There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of <laughs> weird things in that film. I saw that film on the big screen in LA a few years back, and um, but it was introduced by the the, the cast, and um, you're watching it, you're thinking the tone tonal shifts of that film are like wildly all over the place. But you also yeah. sort of like you know, as a screenwriter, I was watching it and I was questioning, "Hang on." Kate works at the bank with Billy, but she also works at the bar. It's like, why does she yeah. have two jobs? And maybe it's to support her uh, family when her dad, her dad is dead. But um, there's a lot of sort of all over the place inconsistencies with that film. But I still love it. If it was contemporary American America, you'd be asking, why doesn't she have four jobs? 
because that's just what's normal <laughs> for a middle. Why is she only working yeah. two jobs? Yeah. Um, no, but when I was sort of thinking about it, I, I, I think I have a higher threshold for what's considered uh, freaky or fucked up in a film because I saw, um, I saw adult films, not the dirty adult films, but adult films yeah. when I was a kid. Uh, when my parents were getting um, divorced, I was staying at my older cousins. And yeah. they showed me over the course of one weekend when I was five and a half, and this is not an exaggeration. I thought I was six, but I was actually five and a half because they'd moved out of that house um, before I was six. But I saw over that one weekend, and these were the first full feature-length films that I'd ever seen because I would have been watching like kids' TV shows and Flintstones and stuff like that. But I yeah. saw Halloween, Halloween 2, The Terminator, American Werewolf in London, all oh in one weekend. <laughs> oh my God. So kids' films after that, it was like anything goes. <laughs> <laughs> what genre did you start end up writing in? Uh, in your, oh yeah, horror. Yeah, horror I, I definitely got warped. Definitely, but um, no, the only kids film that I ever saw that really did get under my skin and freak me out is it's a 1978 British animated film about a bunch of warring rabbits who repeatedly ripped the shit out of each other for mating rights, and it's a uh, oh. Watership Down. It's a beautiful day. All is calm and peaceful in the meadow. Or is it? Oh man! And you know what? I've seen the clips, but I've never seen the film. It's, it's such a dour, horrific, creepy, disturbing film. Like, um, it's so violent, and it, there's just so much death in it. There's like a sequence where all the rabbits are being buried alive in the warren, and they're oh all hallucinating God. and suffocating, and they're piled up to each other. And all the rabbits, for some reason, of the the heroes, um, uh, warren have red eyes, so they look really crazed and creepy wow. and it's also got that horribly horribly depressing um, theme song Bright Eyes but yeah that's the only kids film that ever really I just felt it was unpleasant everything else was like yeah that's kind of creepy that's but it's also kind of cool um, and yeah. I think you roll with the punches more as a kid so that stuff just washed off me but that film really just disturbed me because the rabbits were just mangling each other Yeah, I've, I've seen the clips Kevin and Jesus you question what, what audience is this for because there's blood <laughs> there's blood dripping off their poor little nibbly liberty teeth and oh god it's horrific looking what age were you when you saw this? oh when I saw that I must have been uh, it was on the BBC and I saw it in England, okay. so I must have been I must have been around the same time that I saw Halloween and stuff when I was in my, yeah. between five and six, because uh, I I yeah. left the UK when I was uh, before I turned six, um, uh, so it was on the BBC. It was made in seventy eight, but it was repeated a lot on um, British television in the eighties because it was a huge hit. But mm-hmm. it's it's a film that people outside of the UK have not really seen. It didn't travel as well. But um, it's a creepy, creepy film. It wasn't in, or it wasn't really in uh, the pop culture even here across the water. Like you know, I know the film, the, the book is, is kind of a treasured classic in the UK, but not not so much here. And do you know what it is as well? It's rated U, which means that it's perfectly acceptable for all audiences, and it's lordy, not. Lordy, I promise you, lordy. There's a seagull you know, in it which tells one of the the rabbits to piss off. We help you. Oh my, but um, and I want to what where I want to kind of go is I I, I went back. I suppose and I was you have thinking, to talk okay. about ratings when you're talking about inappropriateness. 
Yeah, you certainly do. And this is going to be, this is going to be, ratings is going to come up in this conversation and uh, the evolution of one particular rating, of course. And we're going to have a reoccurring character from the previous podcast is his episode, name Jack? Well, which is good. His name is Jack. And what's his surname, <laughs> Kevin Lehan? What is it? Valenti. There we go. That's our man. He makes another appearance in this episode. Because like you like you were talking about there, and I'm talking about, we can't, like, we can't set aside the fact that we, we both grew up in the 80s. So we have that kind of subjective experience where we... Uh, where the, the formative films for us were kind of overlapped, and they were uh, mm. from a, a, from from the US, um, from the eighty eighties block, blockbuster uh, uh, pipe, and we couldn't help it. But so I said, well, we also well, got but, it from both sides, didn't we? We got it f- f- being in Ireland. You get a lot of British culture, and you get a lot of American culture, and yes. we sort of passed that between our own um, sense of yeah. humor and things. But yeah, yeah it's it's a lot of Amblin stuff, and Amblin is, of yeah. course, you know, it's a lot of dark subject matter in those films done with a very light touch yeah exactly and so I want to get into inappropriate scenes in kids films right and I want to do it from the uh, um, autobiographical uh, you know from that point of view and I want to take you uh, Kevin to back to Kentork you've never been there probably Norwest Cork I have but I'm usually Uh, passing through it as fast as I can there you go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the Cozy Cinema, which is our little one. It was a one screen cinema back then. It was our little local uh, cinema run by neighbours of mine, uh, the Reardons. And Do you know how you, they, you might have a memory of something uh, and then you go back and you see it and it's totally changed? I bet if you went back to the Cozy, you'd actually find out that there was somebody shed. <laughs> well, the cozy only closed down in the last in the last five or seven years. Like you know, I was I was in there. I saw the Muppets movie, the most recent one. Well, uh, the Muppets movie about ten years ago there. So um, mm. yeah, I did like it was. It felt so much smaller when I went back there. You know, as a as a as an adult. Um, but I want to. When I discovered when I was about four, I discovered that there was a cinema in town, and it wasn't just like a traveling circus. And I, my mind was blown. I was just, I just couldn't fathom that there was a cinema in our little town all mm. these years, and I never knew about it. And I remember my father just kind of laughing at me, kind of going, "Yeah, there is one, like, and it's here the whole time, like, and all." And I was going, "Well, can can I go to? Am I allowed to go to it?" And he says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And it just so happened there was, um, they had a re-release. <laughs> Do they have electricity? <laughs> They have a wow! This is unbelievable. <laughs> oh, the seats too, brilliant, <laughs> and doors, and oh my god! Um, and they were showing a revival of the Jungle Book, and I went in and made me all buy. I just remember. I don't really remember much about the film, but I remember going, "This is great." And so <laughs> I think I pestered my my old lad to take me to every. I think I probably pestered him loads because I can remember going to the cinema like late, late and weeknights and weeknights going at oh, eight, magical. To eight o'clock screenings and I was about I must have been five I'd say I must have been five and he took me and I remember going seeing <laughs> Return to Oz like oh my god talk about <laughs> yeah. that's trauma there um, yeah, that's talk about watch one. that no that's a dark one I and I think what happened was we ended up going to he, he would go and he would fall asleep and I think he kind <laughs> of got to the point where I think it was the Care Bears movie around 1985 oh, 
where he just I think he just went I'm out I, I'm not doing this anymore and uh, there was I'm not watching these came fucking the, bears yeah, it's like fucking Christ above and it came to the point I remember another film was coming out I got in word there was another movie coming out and the old man said to me he says we'll go on Saturday and sure you're old enough to go now yourself aren't you and I went yeah dad of course I'm old enough to go myself and he says grand and he went up and I remember him walking me walking me to the the, the box office it's a small little like closet and um, he asked he paid for my ticket and he asked oh when's the film over and, how old and, were you well I'd say I was uh, about I'd say maximum I was six right dude and this the is the was, thing right just pause yeah. just a second okay could you imagine anyone today allowing six year olds to go to the cinema by themselves I don't care if it's a small got, town uh, yeah, I've got a six-year-old. It's like no, yeah. like literally, I was on my own, like no supervisor. Yeah. I wasn't going to meet anyone, right? And the film was Pinocchio, okay. And I walk okay. in. We're late, first of all. So when I walk in, and it's a Saturday matinee screen, and we walk in, and the play, I walk in on my own into this dark room, and the place is packed. Absolutely wow. jam-packed, right? And so it's, you imagine walking into a dark room, but you just know there's all these faces and it's dark and there's this, it's loud and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, I know I've been there a couple of times, but this is a different situation. And by the way, when I left, when, when my old man was leaving me go, he kind of he kind of slipped an old 50, you know, 50 pence piece into my into my hand to say, go and get yourself something in the shop. Like, And I remember going, 50 pence piece, oh my God, that was brilliant. So I sat there. <laughs> And I went in, I was clutching, the, I had no pockets or something. I was something about me not having pockets. We couldn't afford pockets. That's what happened. Did you we have pants on pockets. at least? I at least maybe possibly had pants. <laughs> no, definitely no <laughs> shoes. <laughs> but I walked in anyway, and I think there was a seat way up the back. And I sat down between these strangers. And I remember there was one boy beside me. And as soon as I sat down, the boy beside me, he just went, how old are you? <laughs> I was like, um, and I think I aged myself up or something. And uh, <laughs> twelve. And he says, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm fourteen. No. I said like maybe it was like five and a half. And I said, I'm six. And he went, Yeah, I'm eight. <laughs> and uh, oh, and he sat there and he just <laughs> I thought it was an old man or somebody. Was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but to me, he was an old man. An eight-year-old to a, a five and a half-year-old is an old man. And so, really, so, so po- Pinocchio was going on. And it's all lovely and like nice, and it. But this fella beside me, he doesn't stop interrogating me for the whole first half of the film. And he goes, <laughs> "What school do you go to?" And I was like, "Going, I'm the one up the road." Do you have any brothers? The typical yeah, cinema experience. Brothers. He says, and then it came, it came to the question that really put me on edge. Do you have any money? <laughs> I was going, um, and I could feel my fist clenching around the fifty. I can still my left hand, Kevin. It was in my left, my left palm, and I clenched it. I clenched it, and he says, "Do you have any money?" I went, "No money, no money," <laughs> and and um, he went, "All right." <laughs> he just kept questioning me, kept dragging him forward of me and um, I kept lying I kept big- I says I'm 6 foot 10 I've got I know how to use did guns. your nose keep getting bigger <laughs> as you were lying yeah yeah and meanwhile meanwhile on the, in the in the movie I'm watching the film of little Pinocchio kind of going out into the world being kind of harassed and kind of coerced by a, 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 a sly fox and, <laughs> and, you uh, and his little sidekick <laughs> 
and yeah, and I was going, I'm, I'm him. I'm having this has happened to me in real life. And this fella, and then I see him being taken away off to this island, and he meets other bold boys, and they start drinking and smoking cigars, and something happens. They all start turning into donkeys, and I'm there holding on for dear life. And then the film goes into intermission, and there's a f- stampede of kids out the door. Remember, this is intermissions time when you could have an intermission and they stampeded out to the shop with all their 10 peas and their 20 peas and getting their Robin Hood ice lollies and their 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 their, their, their Tato's, you know, cheese and onion Sounds crisps. like the Wild West. It was the Wild West. It was the Wild Northwest Cork, Kevin. Of course it was. <laughs> and I, I sat there with my 50p piece clutched in my fist and I couldn't go out and spend my 50p piece Oh, because, because you I lied. told the boy. <laughs> I told him. I said I'd no money, and if I You've came always back with been Robin Hood, yeah. And I, I lie. I, I can't lie because I, I, I just I would be caught in my light. So I just sat there, and he came back with his big feastus of stolen popcorn and stuff like that. And it was literally that experience of watching Pinocchio and that cinema experience with this strange, really intrusive boy beside me was an awful, awful traumatic experience, and. <laughs> I, and I didn't go back to the cinema for a few years after that. That's no word of Jesus. a lie. I just wouldn't go back. Yeah, I was really, I was really shaken by it. Like you know, but I'm going, listening to you I, telling this story about Pinocchio, and I'm thinking, what was the first film that I saw in the cinema uh, with my dad? And uh, right. it was Jaws: The Revenge. So you can oh. see how both of our careers <laughs> went in different directions based on the films that we saw. I wasn't going to see Care Bears. I was off to see, and I was really into the shark. <laughs> Jaws the Revenge actually wasn't scary. <laughs> That's the only it positive thing about No, it wasn't scary. It but was actually yeah, very funny. I would say yeah, uh, yeah. I think I remember kind of like I watched it on video, and I remember kind of going, "Oh, that's pretty good." It wasn't scary. I was kind of happy that it wasn't. <laughs> if I got a horror film that wasn't scary, I thought it was good. You know, that was mm. the way I measured horror movies when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> that was boring. That was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, my first kind of like, in I felt that scene with those kids when they were kind of like, yeah. Um, and I think it's still the case now when I watch that film, when I watch Pinocchio. When those kids are taken off the island and they're turned into donkeys, like they're kidnapped. They're kidnapped. It's horrific. It's terrifying. And yeah, the the scene of them transforming to donkeys is really, really disturbing. Be a pal. Call that beetle. Call anybody. drinking they're smoking you know it's really really disturbing stuff and um mm. chronologically for me that's kind of like one of my first uh, the, the first inappropriate shitty experience in cinema <laughs> shitty experience but a film that kind of like traumatized me as well you know inappropriate scene sort of thing you had the capital cinema you what was your i the, did the, the, i was in the big bad city so you were away in the sticks in a yeah. very uh, uh, parochial little part of uh, Cork, and I was in the big yeah. bad city, and um, yeah, I was off to the cinema quite frequently by myself. By the time I was um, seven, um, and saw saw everything that w- that was coming out that that appealed to me that I could get into as well. It was a multi-screen cinema, so I was living large. I had uh, loads of choice. Man, hey, you're gonna you're you're leading me up to another awful experience and inappropriate film I feel 
um, that I had. And I went to see this opening weekend, summer of 1989. I went to see Batman in the Captain <gasps> Cinema with my cousins. Yeah. I saw that as well. Uh, you, did you see that in the Capitol? Yep, because I was up. I we could have been in the same the screen. Quite possibly, yeah. Yeah, it was a midday screening, uh, matinee screening. And I'm having and a memory now of a guy that was sitting behind me and was whispering in my ear, do you have any money? <laughs> <laughs> it was you, Will, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I just I just learned from experience and I thought that the was bullied the people become you the bullies. Cinema, <laughs> you, just, you, just assume, you just take from the weaker, smaller boys. <laughs> I'm still doing it today. At that stage, I still would have had an English accent, so I was getting it from all ends. <laughs> oh, God. But, yeah, I, I feel um, that Batman was, you know, overall, I would say it's kind of like a typical Tim Burton thing. All these films are inappropriate for kids. They're really... The, I, rem- I remember Batman was the first film I actively wanted to walk out on. I really, really? And truly... Yeah. I went, this is too dark... This is too oppressive. This is not what a superhero movie should be. Because I was kind of of the... <laughs> you a little uppity, like, nine-year-old. Yeah, I, I was like... This is not my was, Batman. Yeah. My Batman but, wears lycra tights, and he's got Robin, and this <laughs> is an outrage. <laughs> but Kevin, it was my... Like, he, Adam West, was my Batman. He was. I loved that and show. I was so into that Batman 89. I was collecting all the cards as yeah. well. I loved it. I remember oh, fucking... Was, I wanted to buy the, the soundtrack and my cousin had um, the Prince album on, on vinyl and I, I used to go around to his house to, to listen to it. Um, yeah. I was all in on that Batman film. I loved it. Uh, yeah, so th- th- that one was for me. I just find the entire tone of that film, the the the, the graphicness, the just the meanness. There's a kind of a mean tone to that film. Uh, with very little likeness for a family film. You know what's weird though about that one is that I got in to see Batman by myself unaccompanied with a mate and I couldn't get in to see Batman Returns. I was too young. So in the space of the first and second film he'd obviously, you know, gone way further with um, the uh, inappropriateness but I was really pissed off. I remember standing outside and and thinking but I saw the first one. Why can't I see the second? No, you're too young. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Like, I had a jolly at Batman Returns. Like, I kind of felt, oh, I'm too old for this almost for Batman Returns. Um, but I lo- but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, I was totally in the zone for it at that stage. Yeah, I saw it on video, unfortunately. There's another glut of 80s movies that came out that really, really effed me up. You've already mentioned one, and it's it's Gremlins, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that a kid's film? I asked that on Twitter today, and I'm not sure. And what's, what did people say? It was split right down the middle. There was people saying yes. Uh, it was about 60% yes and 40% yeah. no. So um, I don't know. I, it's, it's, I, I always assumed it was a kid's film, but when I was in LA that time when I was interning, there was a guy who'd not seen it, one of the other interns, an American yeah. dude, Wheeler. And um, I said, you've got to see it. It's such a great film. And he watched it and he thought it was the most fucked up film ever. He thought, this was a kid's film? This is what you guys were watching? Yeah. This is fucked up. I was like, no, yeah. it's not. Well, th- <laughs> that's what we were watching. It was what we were watching because I can, m- my only, before watching the film, my only exposure to Gremlins was walking through the video library and seeing the cover 
the the video cover on the on the shelf. They're here. There, but it, but there was a box. But coming out of the box was this nice kind of brown and white furry arm and with a little hand. And it's kind of cute. And you go, oh, they're here. This could be kind of cute. <laughs> it's like the Care Bear movie, live action. Yeah, a little bit, you know. But the scene specifically, the scene specifically in that, you know, that is the most disturbing, aside from all the other stuff. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> it's the Santa Claus story. Now I have another reason to hate Christmas. Okay, what are you talking about? The worst thing that ever happened to me was on Christmas. Oh, God. It was so horrible. It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and Mom were, were decorating the tree, waiting for Dad to come home from work. Do you know that they fought so hard to keep that in as well? Really? Wow. They did. Well, like it's, it's Spielberg ballsy. wanted it out. He thought it was way, way too dark. And Joe Dante was like, this is the whole spirit of the movie. This is what it's all about. It's a cynical Christmas film. And um, yeah. yeah, and personally, I think it's it makes the film, but it is so, um, it's so random when you watch the whole film in... in Especially on the big screen where you know you can't look away and there's no ad breaks or you're not being distracted yeah. by you know making a cup of tea, uh, but yeah, yeah it's uh, tonally it's all over the place that film. But that scene, I love it particularly. But I get why people would think it's so fucked up. And but imagine I don't know how I blanked it out because I never copped. I watched that film. I watched Gremlins several times. It was like the scary bits didn't really weren't really that scary to me as a kid. There was a couple of bits when they were like um, in their eggs. Do you and see what I see? Transforming. Do you, exactly that. And I found that that was a bit. Oh, I kind of want to look away. But then when they're the when they're the kind of the menacing Gremlins, they're kind of goofy in their cartoon. You know, you know, Looney Tunes esque. Like you know, you know why that is because dialogue doesn't seep into our heads as much as visual information. I was taught that years oh, back yeah. where if you need to tell the audience something, show it to them, don't tell it to them. Uh, yeah. So you probably just, it just washed over you because it's a, it's a monologue. Yeah, it did. As a kid, it totally, I just blanked it out. I just didn't, I just went, no, I don't know what they're talking about. It's whatever. Um, and that totally, you know, didn't affect me at all, really. Um, and in another film, now you see what happened was in this era it's so in the sad, early 80s. Scene. It's awful. It's devastating. Oh, she she sums up Christmas by saying, "That's funny, you know, because I always thought everyone was happy during the holidays, no matter what." Well, most people are, but some aren't. Well, everybody else is opening up their presents. They're opening up their wrists. It's like Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's right. I didn't understand that either as a kid. But Jesus. But as an adult, when you come back, when you when you watch some of these films, you just go, "Oh my God, this is." I would never show that to my kids. I want. I would love to show them. I would love to show them Gizmo, but I, but I could not show them that. that yeah, that, I think that, that would that film. properly. You know, remember, I was the guy that was watching uh, uh, teenagers getting strangled in cars and stuff. So I was like all in for it. It was cool to oh, me. Oh god! Uh, but I, yeah, yeah I think uh, it might be too traumatizing because kids have gotten a little softer nowadays and. Um, because yeah. they've been fed on a diet of because we were we were the we we're the only generation that was the eighties generation, Kevin. We were that. We were. It's not as if Why it was all that? like. I, I wonder whether it's sort of like we were being. We were seeing entertainment that was being made by people that had lived through, you know, the sixties, where all their heroes were being assassinated in the states. You know, Martin Luther King and JFK and RFK, and uh, you know, you had Vietnam and stuff. And I think 
when those adults got into positions of power and telling stories for children, they really wanted to make films that their peers would think was cool. So that they were quite um, hard or edged. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of shit being processed. I think through those films. So that's my only explanation for it, and that's purely like you know without any without any research done into that. But I just wonder whether the era that those filmmakers grew up in um, was such a cynical period that I think it played into the films. I think you're you're right. I think that is definitely one aspect of it, and I do think another like uh, aspect to that perfect storm is Steven Spielberg's rise to 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 power and prominence because a common denominator amongst all of these films we're going to I've we we mentioned Gremlins and um another film that came out that summer uh, uh, Indian Jones and the Temple of Doom which was mm. one that had seriously disturbing uh, scenes in that of yeah, hearts being human, ripped out of chests. Uh, hearts being ripped kids out. Kids being whipped. I've, kid, yeah, child slavery. <laughs> and even, I think, the most disturbing, you know, I would look away when the heart was being ripped out. I would lean forward. Yeah. <laughs> you would say, I wonder what that would taste like if it was <laughs> salted and put with, put some gar- barbecue seasoning on it. <laughs> but, you know, the thing about that, that movie that kind of disturbed me the most was when Indiana Jones is is brainwashed to become yeah, yeah. an acolyte. That's the one thing where I go, hang on a second, Indiana Jones is Indiana Jones and you've just taken can't away be Indiana evil. Jones. He can't be evil. They made Indiana Jones evil and that's kind of like the Superman 3 um, idea and that disturbed me as well as when Superman when your good guys become bad guys that's that was really fundamentally different uh, when he became an alcoholic and when he became an alcoholic when he split and uh, I thought yeah, when you just mentioned Superman 3 you were gonna you were gonna mention Vera the henchwoman who gets turned into a Terminator by the supercomputer yeah I also thought that was really cool but I there's loads of people anytime you ask people what sort of moments disturbed them in films kids films that one always pops up people were traumatised by that I thought it was amazing (laughs) I was I was yeah I I wanted to look away it's there's a graphicness there's a real horror on her face and there's a real sense of torture there's a real sense that of yeah I can't I, I, I can't tolerate it it really disturbs me and it makes me want to yeah you don't want to be complicit yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah, so the the so Spiel, like this is an interesting thing, right? You were talking about like why did this happen? Now, what happened? What happened was was when Gremlins and in specifically Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out, there was they were all released with a, a PG rating. Violent scenes in two of the most popular summer movies, Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, provoked the new rating. Complaints from parents that some scenes were simply too intense for children persuaded the motion picture industry to come up with PG-13. 
a warning to be attached to some new films released after July 1st. And Spielberg, if yes, he's a great filmmaker, but there's another thing about Spielberg is that he is a shrewd businessman. And he was aware of the potential damage that this backlash to his kind of darker tone of films that he was directing and producing, because not only was, I think, more so the stuff that he was coming out with, the the, the stable of Amblin films that he was producing at that stage had that. We have Bol- Poltergeist and Gremlins and Temple of Doom. And he saw that, hang on a second, this kind of these darker edged films are going to be financially hit by this. See, whenever people talk about Amblin films today, whenever they sort of reference it, that this project is quite Amblin-esque, they always use yeah. that in relation to the film having heart, but for me, the Amblin films yeah. were just—they were—they were—they um, were horror films. They were—they were—they were films that had uh, danger to them and darkness, and there was a yeah. tenderness that went along with it. But there was always death in them, and there was always sort of something quite um, malevolent, sort of mixing around yeah. with this magical uh, uh, story that would be happening as well. And that you're absolutely right, and that kind of tone uh, permeated not just it, it, it permeated from him into his production company but then into films around him like mm-hmm. you know things like Jim Henson's uh, directorial debut The Dark Crystal there's mm-hmm. you look around that era and there's this they're dark fables they're dark fairy tales they're dark adventure stories they're dealing with death a lot there's death in all these movies yeah and that's the yeah. one thing that I got told when I was working on a kids project you stay away from. You got to stay away from death. And when I think back to the eighties, as you're saying all this, it's like death is all over those films. I don't get. I don't get someone saying you got to stay away from death. But you know, the gas thing about it was, uh, as I was saying about Spielberg being a businessman, is that he rings a guy, our famous character, who you've already brought up from a previous episode, the head of the MPAA, Jack Valenti. In 1984, a series of films made it clear that a change needed to be made. It was sort of a perfect storm of movies that I either produced or directed that all sort of came together and created this parental objection to Gremlins being PG and to Temple of Doom being PG. And I agree with that. But I also felt it would have been unfair to have labeled either of those films R. I called Jack Valenti. I said, let's get a rating somewhere in between PG and R. Jack was proactive about it, completely agreed, and before I knew it, there was a PG-13 rating instituted. The president of the Motion Picture Association, Jack Valetti, reluctantly bowed to public pressure. I'm opposed to any, I was opposed to any change in the rating system. I think it's it's a fragile system and the insertion of more categories is not needed. I thought the PG itself was a sufficient warning, but so many of my peers in the business have taken an opposite view that I decided to lead this movement rather than to follow it. What was the first film to have that rating? The first film released to have it on its uh, a PG-13 rating was Red Dawn. Oh. The rating was created for Spielberg. The PG-13 mm. rating was created, but it's suggested by Spielberg and created for Spielberg to mm. uh, basically accommodate his pedigree of cinema. And yeah. so, yeah, it's so, you know, it, it was born from him. It just goes to show the power that man had in Hollywood. The rating system is there to keep parents informed of how to guide their kids. The topic of conversation, at least around our dinner table, is the rating system. So, Kevin, my pick, um, you, you, you set me up with your pick being Watership Down about rabbits. My pick <laughs> for most inappropriate scene 
in uh, in a kids movie is also uh, features and stars a rabbit. It's the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, which was released in 1988. This is the tale of an up-and-coming movie star named Roger Rabbit and a down-and-out private detective Stay out! named Eddie Valiant. Ooga booga! Directed by Robert Zemeckis, uh, adapted mm. from the uh, novel by Gary K. Wolfe, and mm. adapted by um, uh, their screenwriting team, Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman. And Will, <laughs> just to say, yeah. you mentioned that the first unaccompanied film you saw was Pinocchio. This was right. my first unaccompanied film into the big, bad city, the Capital Cinema, when my mate from school, Tomas, and uh, we watched uh, this. We watched um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and it was fucking amazing. Oh, Wow. What a film to see in your first uh, on your first outing on your own, like, and and uh, this is the funny thing about Who Framed Roger. I assume everyone knows the plot of this. The plot, like, is you know, if you haven't seen, who it's, about who Rabbit, it's about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's about Who Framed. It's yeah. It's it it stars um, Eddie Valiant, who is a tune-hazing detective played by the brilliant Bob Hoskins. Rest in peace. And. He's Roger, he, uh, Roger Rabbit, who's a cartoon star, and he's the Raj, Roger Rabbit's only hope to prove his innocence when Roger Rabbit is accused of murder. Um, mm. And yeah, it's well, it's a, it's a full-on war movie, right? In but using uh, car- using cartoon characters as uh, as 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 a, as a, like a lower class of citizen. Everything they're they're the entertainers. They're the they they're the characters that are exploited. There's so much going on in this film that's like I rewatched it last night, and I you you can't but admire the 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 wonder of it. The filmmaking of it is absolutely astounding. It holds up so well as well. It looks gorgeous. Yeah, it's shot beautifully. Even what's almost more impressive. Is if you if you get to look at the making of if you type into Google making of Roger Rabbit, and there's a documentary there to show you the 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 levels that they went to where they mixed um, animated characters. Now it's not the first time, certainly not the first time, two D hand drawn characters have been incorporated with live action footage. But this is the first time it felt real, and the reason and, and the reason it felt real was the 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 efforts to which the uh, Dick Williams the animation director went to they they unlocked the camera they moved the camera like they would in a, a live action movie like they dollied and they panned and they they moved around characters and the challenge for the animators was to make the animated characters feel alive in that scene and oh my, everything was hand-drawn. Every single frame was hand-drawn of the character's movements. And the oh, it's unbelievable. It's you just- know what I love about the animation in that is it sort of feels like it's a cross between the Disney animation and the Warner's animation. You sort of have this sort yeah. of... Um, uh, uh, they've got this sort of luster of the Disney uh, uh, animation, but they have this sort of zaniness yeah. of the Warner's uh, animation. Exactly. It's, um, That's it's great. exactly it. And... I, I, and a thing I want to talk about, to kind of like I suppose, give a little bit of, because I think it's theme. Uh, I suppose it's it ties into the things we've spoken about beforehand. Um, when 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 Gary K. Wolf wrote uh, "Who Censored Roger Rabbit," he had a, a four book deal with his publisher, right? And he all three books, all his first three books, 
were were hits like they just no notes went on the shelf and he was flying and then he had Mm. this idea for who censored roger rabbit and in that it uh, he's uh, animated characters they weren't cartoon characters they were comic book characters so they were like flat 2d characters that appeared in the world and when they spoke they had speech bubbles over their head really now i haven't read the book but apparently the book is great okay it's supposed to be a fantastic book and there was a seek there was actually there's been two sequel books the second book isn't as great because it's a direct sequel to the to the film so a kind of it kind of oh, negates yeah, yeah. some of the plot but apparently the thir- the second the third book is continues from the first book we'll say the kind of the line of the first book and apparently that's great as well so i'm really interested in reading the original book um but guess what so when gary k wolf went to his publisher he's already had three hit books now so he went to mm-hmm. his publisher with this cool idea who censored Robert and he had a cool manuscript very good and he sent it to him and they just went no we're not releasing it we can't publish it because of his his brand name as a, a as a sort of established writer at that stage or what was it no no they said we they said you can keep the money you can keep the fee it's the we think it's a, an amazing book it's a great read but the marketing people the marketing people <laughs> say they don't know how to sell us oh, and yeah so he kept the, he basically got to walk away with the manuscript and just went jesus what the hell do i do with this he sent it to other uh publishers and he was rejected guess how many times he was rejected oh uh, i i couldn't guess to be honest because i imagine it would be as many times as possible i'll tell you 115 times Holy shit. Wow. That is tenacity on his part. Yeah. Yeah. 100. And he said he like there would be days he would go to the post box and he would just he would just basically collect several rejection letters a day at a time. Do you know that always feels like it's it's a test to whenever something great and new comes along, it gets rejected out of hand because people have nothing to compare it to. So, you know, that's just another example of how you have to stick to your guns because. Yeah. Um good stuff is uh, never really embraced immediately it usually takes some time when it's good and new mm-hmm, absolutely and it was eventually someone now he told the story and i found an interview with him where he told the story of the guy the publisher took a, a punt with him but again this publisher just just said i don't know how this is i think basically they released maybe a couple of thousands copies of it and by pure chance, it was just pure serendipity. It didn't slight, it didn't go uh, c- catch fire or anything like that. But by pure chance, it basically landed on the desk of someone at Disney, right? Okay. And, yeah, yeah. And, and they loved it. They thought this is a great read. And they got the book to Roy Disney. Now, Roy Disney went, this is fantastic. And Roy Disney got in touch, uh, basically optioned the book. But uh. you have to, this is 1980 or 1981. And you have yeah, to put yeah. in context, like, where Disney were at in 1980 or 1981. Oh, it was their fallow period. Just, they were they had, they had complete, like, they had put a lot of money into that live-action sci-fi film, The Black Hole. They had no money. They couldn't get anything going. Even mm. their animation stuff was, they were just recycling animation. They were, even though some of those films are still I, really enjoyable, um, but they were they were cut in corners and things were looking they were kind of being kept afloat by the th- the theme parks That's it wasn't until really um, little mermaid was it that they sort of had that resurgence no 
not correct. Wait for it. Wait for it. You're not right. Um, <laughs> what happened was they Roy Disney gets this in his hands. He gets this book and he went, "This could be something that could give us something unique and uh, would could if we could pull it off, could be amazing." Look, we're we're an animation studio after all. We could do something with this. So he started approaching directors, and one of the one of the directors he approached was Terry Gilliam. And okay. Terry Gilliam was in line to, to do this back in about 1982. I could see that. I could see Terry Gilliam mm-hmm. doing Roger Rabbit. Yeah, he's, the, he's both the live action and the animation experience and that zany kind of crazy, uh, oh, it kind of would be a, a, a great uh, match for him. But what happened was Roy Disney just couldn't get the couldn't get the rights and he couldn't, he saw it as... He wanted to kind of do it uh, uh, the Toontown aspect where he needed the Warner Brothers characters as well. And R- Warner Brothers were in a pretty good kind of like run of form. And they just oh, laughed yeah, him out of course. Of it. There was that whole rights yeah. issue thing, wasn't there? Yeah, they just laughed at him and just says, not a chance. And they and the budget of it was really small as well at that stage. They were trying to do it on a... They just couldn't afford it or they just the Warner Brothers weren't going to play ball. So uh, you kind of a couple of years passed and Roy Disney gets basically kind of semi-retired and uh, Michael Eisner and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg come on board it at Disney and take the reins. And that's when they get Steven Spielberg involved. And Steven Spielberg sees the potential uh, for this immediately. And he says, well, the guy I picked, the, the guy he kind of taps to direct it is his buddy, Robert Zemeckis, who was after coming from the hit of Back to the Future. And he says, Zemeckis is the guy who could really do something amazing with this. And they and they said, well, you know, it's yeah, this is great. We've got it. We've got maybe a team, but there's no way Warner Brothers are going to give us the, the rights to the characters. But everyone will say yes to Steven Spielberg. That's exactly what happened. Steven Spielberg was so powerful that he walked over to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers gave them the rights for a song. An actual, a really reasonable um, price. Like, you know, it was unbelievable. The only thing that there was big kind of contractual wrangling over was the amount of screen time the amount of dialogue they literally had to have oh it needed like, to be went, half and half I the suppose exact same yeah so every Steve McQueen and, and uh, Paul Newman and Towering Inferno exact same number of lines yeah. <laughs> same exactly. billing it was exact same same billing same number of frames of animation it was that it was that to that level extent um, of I, uh, of it was they, they, they were so pernickety about they didn't want they wanted equal sharing for both studios now but why am I kind of bringing this up as being having like not just one but I feel several inappropriate things that are in a I think I movie. know what one of them is going to be okay which one you, you bring up which you what one do you think it's going to be well it's the most disturbing scene I've ever seen in the cinema and that is um, when the uh, little shoe is dropped into the dip that was horrifying, and yes. it still stares at me. It's one of the saddest scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. What's that? Remember how I always thought there wasn't a way to kill a tune? Well, Doom found the way. Turpentine, acetone, benzene. He calls it the dip. I'll catch the rabbit, Mr. Valiant. Then I'll try him, convict him, and execute him. <laughs> Last one day, you hey, 
bus. It's an awful scene of see. It's torture. It's torture of a, a, a cuddly, sweet, cuddly character, and it's awful. And this is a kids' movie. It's really <laughs> disturbing. It gets completely unnecessary. Like it's. I can see why they've done it as a film, but like. That character doesn't deserve that. Yeah, we you know now we know that Judge Doom is but an listen, awful, it's, awful villain. We're still talking about it. What thirty years later? So you know, it, yeah. it was worth the it. The impact was there. Yeah, the impact is there. It's absolutely horrific. That's definitely one of the scenes. Um, one of the other scenes, and this is a scene I'm practically kind of like going, oh, I don't think my kids should watch this. And it's a again, it's a brilliant scene. It's the scene where we meet Roger Rabbit's wife. The the famous, uh, the famously buxom Jessica Rabbit, and who's voiced by Kathleen Turner, but she doesn't she doesn't do Jessica's singing voice. And it's at the basically a cotton club where you go in, where humans go in, and they're served by cartoon characters, and Jessica Rabbit comes out. You had plenty money, nineteen twenty-two. You know, and sings uh, a really, really sexy number, and all of the guys—it's creepy, but I totally understand where they're coming from because, oh my god, you know, she's drawn amazingly. She's like, almost as sexy as the caramel bunny. <laughs> almost, but like, I find this scene to be right. One, you've got it's. It's far. It's objectifying her in a way that's like not appropriate for a kids' film. It's portraying women. It's portraying the female figure in an impossible way. It's too. It's overtly sexualized in a way that's just. I think you know. Show, like kids. It's great. Like, <laughs> it's it's also fantastic. It's also amazing because the because of how it's sold. Like when she goes up to when she goes up to uh, Marvin Acme. And that's her kind of client for the night. When she's like, you know, the the performance where she kind of slides her hand under her under his jacket and pulls a uh, his uh, scarf, his little handkerchief out of his pocket and sque- and squeakily like rubs the top of his head. The the animatronic work, the real life puppeteering, and the animation uh, and the performance uh, is just it all works seamlessly. Seamlessly, where you feel this is real. Your brain is tricked into feeling. This is this is a really beautifully drawn, incredibly sexy, but weird, weird cartoon character, and um, it works. But it's totally, totally inappropriate. It's all like I wouldn't. I would be kind of mortified showing it to my kids. You know. Um, now I think, you know, I I would be totally fine with them seeing him when they're. You know, in their teenage years, but right right now, no, I don't think I could. I don't think I could uh, show it to them. Mm. Um. The other, the other scene and the final scene, and my kind of scene that really um, is my pick for like my my best and most disturbing scene of this film. I have no idea what this could be. Well, it's it, it came to light from last night, really watching it last night, and and to show kind of how effective this film is, um, I had the same reaction to the, watching it last night as I had when I watched it as a kid, where. I had a a mixture of emotions of, one, I admired the hell out of it. I laughed with it. I loved watching it, right? Mm. I loved watching the film. But I was terribly, terribly unnerved by the film. Really? The scene, yeah, I was really unnerved. It left me with a sense of disillusion. 
Um, and also a story, a story of redemption. Um, but the scene that was most disturbing and inappropriate for me was the kind of the final climax scene where where Judge Doom has uh, he is revealed to be the the real bad guy as if we you know as if we didn't know that he was the bad guy in this and in actual fact he reveals that he's not a human judge he's a tune in the skies self-hating tune yes self-hating tune He's a murdering, torturous. He is the he is the worst. He is the. It's kind of like the Wicked Witch in the West from the Wizard of Oz. There's that kind of vibe out of it. Where it's this. There's a fundamental kind of like unnerving terror and dread that his character elicits in me that I kind of can't understand. But I really think it's too goddamn scary for a kids' film. It's really, really, really strange, and um, it's brilliantly effective. Um, but ultimately, the whole film then kind of ends. The, the the film ends after that. Basically, they defeat him, but like the film ends where, well, hey, we saved Toontown because that's what was kind of at stake. And it kind of goes, oh, everything's fine. And that's all, folks, right? And it tries to wrap up in this nice, neat, nice, neat bow of everything's grand now, isn't it, folks? And there I am as a, an eight-year-old kid watching it at home and on a, in a video. But I feel like I watched it in the cinema, and I was the exact same last night uh, watching it, and I went. No, everything's not okay. What an awful world these tunes live in. The world is awful. And it's as if innocence, the film kind of... I feel the film kind of destroys an innocence and a purity and joy of comic book characters because it posits this alternative universe where where these comic book characters are exploited and tortured and are servants. And I just go, I hope it's not real. I hope it's not real. <laughs> so it just made I me feel the promise you will cartoons are not real yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> oh thank god so yeah that was that's my pick for most uh, inappropriate scene in the kids movie but wait who did frame Roger Rabbit who and did why frame doesn't Roger Rabbit, Roger Rabbit good... have a question mark <laughs> <laughs> grammatically inappropriate yep. but Kevin Yes. We have the, the, the business Episode to, 8 done. That is episode 8 in the bag. I can't believe it. Well, and this is the time of the week where we spin the wheel. So here we go. I'm just going, going to spin the wheel and spin. I wish I had a veto. You have a veto. Can you give it to me? <laughs> okay, it's still spinning. Kevin, I'll give it to you for 50 give me, pence. Give me 100 quid. 50 pence? Go yeah. That, would you? Okay, it's spun. Kevin, it's spun. It's spun. Right, I'm just looking. Okay, what is I'm it? I'm looking. Are you ready for this? I'm not, but Your go ahead. topic for next week is best practical FX scene. <laughs> best practical FX scene. Well, that's ah, going to be okay. a very okay. um, uh, visual episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. That's good. Okay. I might have oh, to ask my mate Dan Martin. Uh, to uh, help me out with that, uh, he's a, a visual he's effects um, wizard and uh, oh. or practical effects wizard, so he um, yeah he might have some thoughts on that. But okay, let me think on that. Um, I'm thinking creature features. I'm thinking 80s. I'm thinking I'm thinking. Well, you'll find out next week. There's so many cool. I actually forgot to bring out all the cool practical stuff they did in Roger Rabbit to make 
the animation look real. It's amazing. Please look at the practice. They made little robots. They made little robots for the when the when the animated characters like interacted with the real world. So like when he was smashing plates on his head, they would have a little robot that smashed plates on its head, and uh, it was amazing. It's mm. absolutely brilliant. So you could you could you could have used that, but I've taken no Kevin. Okay, it's so not, do you want to do next good. week's episode as well? <laughs> No, 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 no. I, I feel I've contributed enough to the switch. Okay. <laughs> My head is busting up. Um, but I'll sell you a veto if you want it. You want a veto? <laughs> As I said, I got 50 pence off this kid once in the cinema, and that's what I'm worried to offer you. <laughs> okay, well, where can people find right. you? Okay. Um, they can find me on Twitter uh, under Willems Film, uh, W-I-L-L-U-M-S-F-I-L-L-U-M. Kevin, where can people find you? They can find me on MySpace under uh, no they can find me on Twitter as well <laughs> at Kevin Lehan and uh, we also have a, um, a show uh, tw- uh, Twitter feed which is at Best Bits Pod and uh, yeah that's that's the show I guess so next week Best Practical Effects scene alright looking forward to it looking forward to it Best Practical Effects scene okay good luck see you Best Bits Podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show, the full episode plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits for Will and Kevin. No, the best bits for Kevin and Willem. For the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. Okay. <laughs> you can't you throw what? <laughs> oh my God. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits for Kevin and Willem. Talking TV and the latest Okay, right. I'm gonna find the fucking thing because it's gonna be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it, that'll do. Because it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened. <laughs> I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like, nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought, they hadn't listened to it yet. And then, of yeah. course, I was delighted with that. And people hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy on the ears in, a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice. So there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm, I'm, I'm Hogwarts and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. Yeah, that's exactly it's good. Did you do? So. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage. Know, I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God. I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. The best is Kevin Willem about the telly and the latest film. Talking shit at the dynamic duo. Don't forget, now you owe three euro. Come off the stage, old That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could have happened.
How do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about. Should I start the timer? Have we just started? Start the timer because I'm rare to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster. Oh, very recently, it went. There's a Madam Web film, and I'm what is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago and I thought it was just tedious. It's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvel's, well, yeah. she's in it, Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel 2. It was just sort of like, it was another one of those films that felt like Ant-Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and Mm -hmm. airless. And, you know, you just have sound stage after sound stage. And I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. I feel like Uh, there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue to the hairstyles to the costumes to the sets to the music to everything just feels It's artificial wafer thin just wafery artificially no sustenance no satisfaction you know protein in it whatsoever you feel like oh wow I just I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry It feels like eating plastic Okay On the whole it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them Yet I found The Flash really fun because it was it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of The Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went to the Madam Web not really giving a fuck about the genre but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it and the trailer was awful it had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's she's shitting out exposition and I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage and uh, the film itself to me played like a Final Destination action thriller and I thought it was really pleasant it didn't bother me in the slightest I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has it was Uh, A reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just play that out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And... 
I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but they've almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I have to listen to it. Was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Cathy was pushing back and I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Cathy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I, <laughs> <laughs> but you know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I like Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. Thank you.